The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. In this episode, I spoke with Pat Jackson, founder and CEO of Sabal Capital Partners, a California-based financial services firm focused on investing and lending in workforce housing. He provides an in-depth look at workforce housing and what challenges and opportunities exist in this area of the multifamily market. Pat, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here, Nick. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And um, to start right off, the the shortage in workforce and affordable housing across the U.S. is a problem that has uh, more than just one cause. But can, can you briefly summarize the factors that led us to our current situation? Well, I mean, it, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. There is a shortage and it has been a historic shortage. And, uh, you know, if you look at it, there's two there's kind of two lines you have to pay attention to. One is what has been the supply over the last, let's say, decade. And so oncoming uh, availability for places where people could rent. And then, of course, there's the other is the demand, and that's increasing as well. And there's a lot of factors that go into play there. Uh, let's talk about the demand side for one, and, and that is just one, the, the big shift that people are staying in rental properties longer than they historically have. You know, the American dream, like I'm going to rent till I can buy, and then I buy, and then I, you know, and then I um, have a home. Uh, that's not the, that's not the, the driving motivation of a lot of people like it was in generations prior. And, you know, in part because there's a lot of flexibility of, hey, I rent and then my lease ends up and I can move again. So there's a lot of flexibility in that. I think a lot of people saw parents lose uh, a lot of equity in the global financial crisis because their homes that they thought they were their, their nest egg, you know, was underwater. And there's a lot of fear about that. And, and then finally, just the convenience factor. You don't have to worry about paying property taxes. You don't have to worry about, in many cases, mowing the lawn or worrying about this. You can call the, the super and he can come up and fix it for you. So there's a lot of things that are driving that on, on the, on the demand side. And, um, and then of course, you know, let's not, let's not ignore the fact that on the demand side, credit standards are much tougher now since the global financial crisis. So down payments are typically a lot higher. Credit scores are more rigid. And the ability to be able to pay, proving you can pay, is is tougher. And uh, the reality is uh, being able to uh, save enough to be able to put a down payment on a home is uh, is harder, uh, especially when we've dealt with a COVID. A lot of people have depleted savings. So, you know, it's going to extend that, that I'm going to be a renter for a long time even more. So on the demand side, there's just a lot of factors on that. On the supply side, uh, you know, let's face it, when you look at the rent you can get for for a particular demographic, which is, uh, you know, you know, say an affordable housing or, or workforce housing, it's only going to allow you to be able to build a certain cost unit to be able to get a return. And as building costs have been increasing, uh, you know, pretty steadily, the the uh, the emphasis on 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 apartment buildings have been more focused on, you know, class A luxury where they can get a higher rent profile uh, to be able to make it pencil. Therefore, we just haven't seen a ton of new 
supply coming into this space, um, you know, compared to the, you know, I'll call it uh, class A luxury, uh, higher amenity uh, properties. And um, so that's, you know, that's putting a, a bigger uh, uh, issue when you have increasing uh, supply, increasing demand and a, and a, and a, and a limited or, or say a pretty static uh, supply side, and um, what that creates is a lot of a, a, a lot of tension, uh, you know, in the marketplace. Um, obviously, uh, landlords that own workforce housing would love to be able to use that supply-demand imbalance to actually jack their rates up. But there is a there's a natural governor in workforce housing, and that is the ability for someone to pay. What per, what percentage of their overall income? If there's a point of I just don't have any more money. I mean, when you think about rent and food and kids, there's just not enough there. So it, it has kept the the ability to actually just price to market in this space under wraps somewhat. Um, but it's uh, that's that's had a that's had a unintended. Uh, long-term consequence of, you know, you're just not encouraged to go out and build it up, build more, more product. So um, that's a long answer, uh, but it's, but it is, it is, it's complex, but when you hear it and think about it, it kind of makes sense. You know, it's like, yeah, I get it. Um, You know, I get it. You know, there's more people looking for, to fill this segment and we haven't been building to match the growing need. And therefore, we have a supply and demand imbalance. And that's, and that's, you know, that means that, uh, there's a bigger, bigger emphasis on how do we actually meet this, uh, this need on a longer term basis. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, you know, just coming from, from a, a econ 101 perspective, when you're talking about the, the supply and demand kind of competing against each other, that, that seems like, you know, like I said, from a, from a, a 101 perspective, it doesn't seem right. But, um, you know, from, from, your firm specializing in financing existing workforce housing. What what are the primary factors that you look at to determine a high quality investment from your perspective? First and foremost, we we, we participate in this space in a lot of different areas. Uh, you know, Sabal is a Freddie and Fannie uh, uh, lender. We're a seller servicer in the uh, in, in for multifamily properties. So we're we're a provider of financing to operators who already own the buildings. And, uh, or just simply looking to put, you know, durable long-term debt, uh, you know, fixed rate loans on their properties. And, you know, so it's, you know, basically they just need to have a mortgage and they collect the rents and they pay their mortgage and they pay the expenses and they pocket the difference. It's just a, you know, it's just a pretty simple thing. But, but on the terms of when we invest, uh, in this space, you know, we're not, uh, we're not operators. We're the investors in commercial real estate. In general, and typically what we want to do is we want to find a great partner, uh, a JV partner that has a property, has a track record, aligns culturally with us and has the same views about how we're going to run that for an investor, uh, you know, as an investment property. And, um, you know, so what we're looking for is obviously the first the first and foremost thing is the right property. I mean, it's got to make sense financially. Um but secondly is is who who's going to be our partner uh who's going to be the partner with the deal that that's ultimately going to be the day to day person running that property, ensuring that the property is being properly managed and um doing all the right things uh to 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 one to the tenant 
but also to our investors. We want to make sure that we have a good partner that we're going to we're going to be comfortable knowing that our returns are, you know, are 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 being satisfied the right way. So, you know, that's very much how we look at, you know, any real estate investment is is, you know, obviously on a case by case basis with the real estate, but secondly with who we're going to be partnering with. And you know, we do 95, you know, five deals where we're we're 95% of the equity, 90-10 deals where we're 90% of the equity. Um and it does give operators an opportunity to find deals that might otherwise not be something they can do personally, but they can they can they can I'm gonna call it grub stake themselves into this market, um, and uh, and 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 start getting into the into the real estate business. It's hard to do it from the first deal. Often you see kind of a fem, friends and family approach. I mean, we're certainly you know an institutional investor, but um, once we see uh, uh, you know maybe maybe it's, you know two entrepreneurs starting a business, we think that they have the 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 wherewithal to do it and do it right, you know, we we would be interested in seeing and doing something with them. And we've done it a lot of times. And, you know, just going back to the global financial crisis, we ended up buying, uh, you know, uh, we had 5,000 loans at one point um, that um, that we managed. And of, of those, about 3,000 became real estate that we owned. We weren't, you know, individually managing 3,000 properties, but we had 3,000 different partners working with us on those properties to make sure that we were getting the best results. And so that's, that's a model that works. If you, if you tie it back to workforce housing, a lot of workforce housing product is, is older properties that need a rehab. They need to facelift. The, the current manager may be, I'm done. I don't want to do it. So it's an opportunity to, to, to uh, allow new entrepreneurs to get into the real estate business, partner with companies like ours, and go in and uh and 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 give that property kind of a new lease on life which by the way frankly from a social point of view does does good it helps revitalize neighborhoods it has a better place for you know workforce families uh, to be able to live and uh so it so it really is a great model and um you know the thing about workforce housing typically there these are not big you know mega structures they're you know they're Two, three, five, ten million dollar buildings that um, that um, you know often are self managed, and um, you know that's the demographic that that needs to continue to be evolving. Not necessarily from a, from a new uh, building; it's just continuing to revitalize uh, these properties in, in uh, especially in urban areas where uh, people need a, a, a good, safe place to live. Yeah, it sounds like there are deals to be done and willing investors. Uh, so what's key to those interested parties in meeting the demand for workforce housing? I think that we have to build more. I mean, it's just an active life because it's like, a, it's like a point in time. If we said, hey, we have a point in time where we can say this is the known need for this. Maybe we can get there, but the problem is that the, the the demand is increasing and will continue to increase. And by the way, the demand is not static in its own right. You have you have new working adults that need a place to live. You have new working families that have different needs needing a place to live, and then you have an aging uh, 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 you know society that's going to need a different set of demands needing a place to live and all these sectors can that have 
different workforce housing, affordable housing uh, needs. Uh, first and foremost, a, a price point that, that's affordable, but but the needs are going to be differing for these various demographics, and they're ever shifting. And um, so uh, it's, um, you know, it really depends on what your business model is. If you think about it from the from the entrepreneur point of view, saying I I, I want to go in and and my primary job is to buy old rundown buildings and fix them up and then sell them. It's one thing, but it's another saying, hey, I'm a I'm a long term holder operator and that's my business model and how I ultimately get there. You know, your return thresholds may be altogether different if you're thinking, I don't need to get a, a return in the next five years. I'm going to hold this property forever. You may have a different viewpoint about that um, than a guy basically saying, hey, I'm, a, I'm just a, you know, primarily I'm not really an operator. I'm really more of a fix and flip guy. Um, and then I'm going to turn it over to the to the person who really is more focused on holding it and operating it long term. So that's going to drive your business plan. Um, and I think that might be your audience, uh, Nick. Um, is I mean, they have different they have different uh, business plans and they need to be identifying how they're identifying a business plan is going to play relative to the target market, whether it's just an urban infill or is it some kind of, a, you know, specific uh, specific demographic that they're going after but again it all has to have this kind of component of you know price point that doesn't price themselves out of their target market speaking of that price point is it um do they specialize in meeting certain price points in markets is that common in 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 this in the market in general you have comp you have companies that are focused on you know for example hud hud focus space which is long 35 year mortgages and, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it may be, you know, appealing to a specific sector, uh, of, uh, you know, which is more affordable, which may have, you know, vouchers and whatnot that are, that are supplementing the, uh, the income, uh, for rental properties. So that's certainly a sector in there, specialists in that. And, and, and we don't see a ton of overlap between that and I'll call it market rate. Uh, multifamily investors, but are, but are specifically to a price point. And I'm going to differentiate between workforce and affordable. Um, and, and it's a little bit of a, of, of a nuance in that regard. I mean, workforce is simply a, a designation that says, Hey, the average median income in this particular MSA, uh, is $45,000. And, um, if you're, if you're rental, um, property is, um, pick a number, $1,000 a month, you may find yourself $1,000 a month for somebody who makes $45,000 a year after taxes, that may represent 50% of their living expense uh, or, or their take-home money. And that's that kind of puts them into one bucket. And then we have, for example, like a 60 AMI or 80 AMI. And um, that means that what percentage of their overall Take home is really allocated to just a place to live, and um, and you know you you have to and that's the governor on how much you can charge. I mean, if you're a landlord and you're saying, "Hey, I'm going to increase my rents by a hundred dollars a month," and your average tenant's like, "Man, I'm already at my limit. I'm having to like parse out. You know, I'm having ketchup sandwiches twice a week." I mean, they're not going to. They just don't have the luxury of increasing it. Much as they want to stay in that property, they just don't have it. And Wages are not growing, um, you know, at such an exponential rate uh, historically that they can just say, oh, I'll absorb the uh, the rent increase. So that's going to has a natural 
uh, that has a natural governor on what they can charge. So operators, and now I'm getting back to the operators to answer your question, operators in that space have to be very mindful of how they, they, they uh, run their business. They need to be very efficient because they do have that issue that if they price it up, you know, sometimes $20 a month is the difference between keeping your tenants and not. So you have to be very mindful about what your costs are and uh, and be able to appeal to that marketplace. And um, so, you know, there's specialists in that. And, and obviously in that particular case, you're going to be not necessarily having, you know, a heavy amenity uh uh, offering within those, uh, within those properties because everyone's basically saying, I just need to basically have a, a, a safe place to live for, for an amount that I can afford and still have enough left over for eating and, you know, and other quality of life issues. So, um, you know, there's operators that are, are specialist and a lot of that comes through scale. So, you know, it's, if you can, if you can get some economies of scale, you actually can find yourself um, uh, squeezing out a little bit more profit than the other guy who maybe has one or two properties because uh, that scale affords you the opportunity to, to um, you know, pool resources, whether it's maintenance or, or you know, whatever it may be. So, uh, so the answer is absolutely there's, there's pockets of specialists that focus on particular areas. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. We have, a, we have an important client that uh, his entire business plan, and he has a huge portfolio, you know, multi-hundred million uh, portfolio. And um, his whole business model is buying the properties that need a, a substantial facelift and, um, and, and going in and rehabbing them and, uh, and, then, and then be able to, you know, put, put new tenants back in there and then operate them. And he doesn't ever want to sell. But he does such scale on the rehab that he buys all of his, uh, bathroom equipment and all everything around the kitchens and everything around the you know the 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 the, the individual apartment units in bulk. I mean, he may buy 500 ceiling fans at one time. He may buy you know uh, uh, you know 100 microwaves at one time. And part of the reason why is one he 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 knows that it gives him the economy of scale to buy, but also he knows that servicing those those apartments on a going forward basis, if he has exactly the same model microwave in every one of his units, when those tenant calls and said, Hey, my microwave doesn't work. They don't have to really debate it. They just go out with a new one and slip one out and slip the other one back in. It's extremely efficient to be able to operate that way. So they've figured out a business model to one streamline the cost of turning the units over to get them back online with a lot nicer amenity package. And at the same time, their ongoing cost to run that, those units is minimized because they're standardizing as much as they can. This is an example of people who focus on it can really get to be, um, you know, quite, quite efficient in how they run their business. And by the way, and fill an incredibly important need in the market for, you know, a nice, safe, clean, uh, amenitized uh, uh, apartment for a, a price point that that is, as, as I've already talked about, is supply com- demand constrained. I think that's a great example of, um, you know, outsiders looking at this market sector um, realize there is a bit of a ceiling on your income. So, you know, you need to find out <laughs> how to make the numbers work and, and, and how to make sure that uh, 
that this is a viable investment. So, Nick, you give you a good example. You asked me about, you know, our investing. Uh, if we have, um, if we have somebody come to us with a, hey, I've got this, uh, this building tied up and here's what I plan on doing for it. And I'm going to jack the rates up, you know, $250 a month after I fix it up. You know, one of the first things we'll ask is let's look and see what the AMI is. What is the average median income? And is that even a realistic assumption? And a lot of times they realize, wait a minute, that's not a really realistic assumption. You're not going to be able to fill it up because, you know, other other units in the same you know geographic area, the same zip code have a certain price point. You just can't ignore the market. And um, because, as I mentioned, you know, when when you're on a budget, and I mean, you're on a serious budget, twenty dollars a month can matter. So um, that's um, I mean, I think that's one of the things that when we when we're looking at investments, we're looking at how realistic is it? Yeah, I think just, you know, I think working in a vacuum and, and assuming you're you're investing this much, therefore, you know, you expect this much more income uh, sounds great. But sometimes the demographics just aren't there. <laughs> you know, the numbers aren't there for you. Um, and obviously you, you mentioned COVID and it's, um, it's a topic that nobody can avoid and, and multifamily has remained somewhat of a bright spot in, in commercial real estate. Um, has this held true in workforce and, you know, what are the, what is the major impact that, that the sectors felt from COVID? Uh, it's, it's, it's first and foremost, you know, if you think about workforce and typically it means sub $10 million loans, uh, around those properties, um, you know, it's this, the sheer volume is so much higher than larger loans. So it's, you know, so it's a little bit of misnomer when you hear, oh, this sector is not held up as well. There's a lot more loans in default or a lot more loans in forbearance. Yeah, but look at it in dollar terms. It's, it's had incredible uh, success. And these, uh, these properties have, have actually held up quite well. Uh, we have, uh, you know, when we when we uh, when COVID hit, we we offered forbearances uh, to our borrowers, um, and I think we have about six thousand loans uh, in, in our servicing book. And um, and we were we were, I mean, our first thought was, holy cow, it's going to be everybody's going to sign up for forbearance. And and the reality is, just a fraction uh, of our of our um, our loans actually requested and needed forbearance and uh and it in in, in april i think it was the first, april 2020 is when we first offered it and then in may it was half as many people in april and in june there were only two i mean it was just it was zero because i think that people i mean operators again started realizing that this property type is going to hold up because it, you know what are your options and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad truth that, that obviously the, the space that workforce housing serves has probably been harder hit economically than, uh, than, than other, um, than other, um, you know, income levels. But, um, but it, in spite of that is held up incredibly well. And I think in part, again, this is kind of like a, an odd connection, but, um, because, you know, what are your options? Because, hey, you get into an apartment that's affordable that you like and want to stay there, you really got to prioritize keeping that because of supply and demand, the likelihood they're moving, they may not be able to find a similar place to live for the same price point. And um, so 
working with a lot of our operators, um, you know, we've we've asked, what are you doing? A lot of you know, a lot of them pivoted their whole business model to be able to uh, try to help their tenants get whatever assistance was available for them. Uh, I know some have gone so far as to actually create job fairs and whatnot for their tenants that were that were somehow you know, lost their job through COVID. Uh, so you know, the operators have done everything they can to try to to try to help their tenants to be able to stay in their their in their apartment and keep paying. And I think the results overall have been really good. Uh, there's no denying that that the government assistance had a huge help, right? And uh, and I mean, and, and the reality is, you know, say what you will, um, it's it's the trickle effect of of the of the economy being supported by the government has been in part people have been able to stay in their home, and um, and it's helped this sector tremendously. And um, so I think that um, you know, I mean, I'm not to get into government policy, but it's probably pretty good government policy all in all. You, I mean, there's a lot of focus on what the government was going to force people to do from an operator point of view, oh, rent forgiveness and all that kind of thing. But that never really seemed fair. Nor did I ever think it really is going to gain tremendous traction. But, um, you know, now that we're on the other side of COVID, I mean, somewhat, I mean, we're still, we haven't, we can't declare victory, but it looks like things are starting to get better. Um, the economy is starting to, you know, start to reopen. And, uh, you know, part of the ability to actually get back into the workforce, if you've been out of work, is at least having a, a you know, a place to call home. So the importance of workforce housing being stable and, and keeping people in their homes is a surefire way of getting our economy back on track more quickly. Because otherwise, think of all the disruption if you're if you had to move out of your apartment and you're living, you know, you're living in someone's basement or whatnot, and you don't really have a place to call home, and you're trying to get a job. It's just the stress and the and the inertia of getting back on track is hard. So, um, you know. Look, we're not, we're not the, we're just a small, you know, a small cog and a big wheel, but we feel like that our emphasis on workforce housing, uh, is a, is kind of a, a noble investing cause. And, uh, you know, obviously we're looking to make money. So I mean, nothing altruistic about that, but, but the reality is we like workforce housing in, in many parts because we think we are doing something good. And, uh, and I think that a lot of the operators, of course, they're trying to make a buck. So, I mean, that's the that's the beauty about it. But the reality is they can also do good in the process. And we like that. And uh, I know a lot of the people we do business with feel strongly about that as well. Yeah, because I, I think um, especially in COVID, we um, Casey Conway, CCM Institute's economist, you know, going through the end of last year into early this year, he kept um, emphasizing the point that, you know, the, this government uh, assistance and these programs are all hopefully building a bridge from the worst of the worst to the point where, you know, you can see the sun coming out and, you know, things can get kind of back on track. And I think that's to your point where, uh, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, we're, we're getting to that point now where it's like, okay, you know, things are coming back online and hopefully we can, uh, we can return to, to some sense of normalcy. Yeah. Uh, uh, me too. And, Look, there's. I'd be foolish not to point out there has been just you know this has created distress in the marketplace, and there's sectors in the marketplace that are going to be more heavily affected than others. You know, certainly hospitality, certain retail, 
um, have been a, been a, impacted. And, you know, not every, uh, you know, a, a apartment building has weathered the storm. There's, there's, there's a certain amount of distress, but the nice thing about it is, um, there's a lot of investors looking to, to, to buy. So, um, that, that certainly is, um, that certainly is a positive as far as being able to, you know, to bring in new operators with the financial wherewithal to be able to do what it takes to kind of get that, that underperforming property on the other side and be able to be part of the supply that, that we've talked about so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and mentioning kind of uh, mentioning the, the amount of investors looking to the sector, are, do you see any, uh, any changing trends in the next year, two years, five years that, that are of note for our listeners? Well, you know, cap rates, um, everybody talks about cap rates and the cap rates on this, on this sector haven't really changed a lot. You know, they haven't gone up to create, you know, a, a, you know, more compelling, uh, you know, buying opportunities. And I think that is in part because it's looked at a lot more as a, just a steady, reliable return. And, um, you know, we don't anticipate it go a lot lower because it's going to be hard to justify. Uh, and frankly, I don't just, I don't anticipate it springing out a lot either. Uh, so, um, you know, look for, I mean, as, as your audience, you know, it won't even get in this business, look for other things that might be, um, uh, where you can add value, whether it's, uh, uh, an older property owner that's just ready to move on or whether it's a, a property that needs a facelift where some sweat equity and, and some investing into the property will make sense. Um, but just the idea of, uh, you know, buying and, and, and doing nothing and just saying, Hey, you know, it's a rising tide lifts all boats. The reality is, um, uh, I don't know that that's, um, that's going to be a sound, uh, uh investing, uh, a plan for the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think complacency, especially now, is not the answer <laughs> that that people are looking for. Um, great. Well, well, yeah. A final question. Um, you know, you mentioned the, that some properties, um, especially hotels, for example, are are in this, in uh, in trouble. Do you see? Is there an opportunity there for for properties to be converted into affordable or workforce housing? Is that something that's on, on your radar? Oddly, somebody presented that business case to us just yesterday. Um, and it's always been um, a, an option um, for some hotels. Um, I, I frankly, I think it's, it's so, it's so uh, specific to the property uh, that, I mean, to say that it's a trend, I, I again, just from my my perspective, I think the answer is no. I don't see like some you know sudden epiphany that oh my gosh, look at all these hotels that had trouble. We're going to fill the void. I just don't think that that's going to happen. Um, you know, we saw a portfolio of hotels uh, earlier in the crisis um, that came across our our investor side of the house, um, and I think it had like. 48 properties or 50 properties. And uh, when we went in and looked at the um, the portfolio and, and ultimately bid on it, uh, in which it didn't trade, but, um, you know, we were going through property by property asking, you know, what's the best use for this? And, and, and a lot of the cases, the properties that we were looking at 
were not well suited as hotels in the first place. That's why they were in trouble. It had nothing to do with COVID. They were bad. They were you know bad investments to the get go. And uh, and in many cases, we looked at them and said, well, could you in fact take this and convert it to multifamily? And it comes back to the point where when you look at the the price to buy the property, and then the and then the expense to completely convert it to making multifamily, in almost every case, it couldn't pencil to meet the price point for the locations those specifically properties were. Okay, so that's the kind of a case in you know, you know of a of a pool of fifty properties we couldn't really find, but maybe one that we even thought made sense to to pursue an alternative business plan for it. And it, it comes down first of what we talked a lot about. You've got a price point you have to have to consider. And if you're going to buy a property and then go in and have to completely change its its use and put all the infrastructure in place, the cost and whatnot to make it, you know, actually an apartment, not just a, a, an overnight stay. Um, you have to consider, well, how much is that going to cost? And ultimately, how much can I charge and what's going to be my return? And, in, you know, so it's it's not to say you can't do it, and, and and certainly it has been done, and I think it's been done successfully. It is really um, on a on a I'll call it like a, a you know a, a specific individual asset by asset, and certainly not a general trend that we're we're, we're looking at it at all as being one of the supply triggers to help mitigate some of the issues we see of workforce housing. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it seems like. Um... Obviously, it all comes down to the numbers working, and and workforce housing has um, has a number of, of issues already already related to it. Um, well, great, Pat. I, I appreciate the time. I think I think the insights into the sector um, are certainly valuable, and and it's good to hear um, we're reaching a point where you know there, there's hope on the horizon, and, and there's a reason to be optimistic. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks again, Nick. I appreciate it. Now, it's uh, it's really nice chatting with you, and. Hope your audience gets um, gets something from today's podcast. Perfect. Thanks again, Pat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate. 